to answer three big questions this morning. The three questions are, how did faith become the way to receive salvation? What was the purpose of the law of Moses, and why did the law of Moses have to die? Three big questions, and uh, each of them could be their own sermon, but we're going to just smush them all together, because that's all we have time for. So, uh, Galatians chapter 3, it's, this thought begins, of course, earlier in, in chapter 2. He's talking about, at the end of chapter 2, uh, the, the, the law and the law's ability to establish righteousness. And he says effectively that it didn't work. And he ends chapter 2 in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's talking about that there are some people in Galatia, in a, similarly to uh, the Colossians, uh, that they're Judaizing teachers and they are trying to push the law, trying to say, you know what, you need more than just Jesus, you need Jesus and something else. And Paul is saying that that kind of teaching is errant, that this, that's not going to lead to salvation, it's not going to lead to righteousness, it's only going to lead to less of what you need, less than a true gospel. And so he says that this kind of teaching, that you need more than just Jesus alone, that you need the law in addition, nullifies the grace of God. And he says that we can't have that, that the law was, could not bring righteousness, and that if it could, then Christ would have died for no purpose. And so then, with that kind of idea, we enter into chapter 3, where he talks to them in the first five verses about receiving the Spirit and its effect on salvation. But he reaches verse 6, and that's where we're going to begin. He says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this brings us, of course, to our first question about faith and promises. So he makes this bold assertion that Abraham was counted righteousness in verse 6 because it's counted righteous because of his faith and that God gave Abraham the promises. And so the way to receive the promises of Abraham is to be a child of Abraham. And the way to be a child of Abraham is to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and have faith. So I want to ask, is this a new concept? Because it seems as we're reading that maybe uh, Paul is saying something that is, is new, but I would like to make the strong claim that it is not. That the way that you are righteous before God the way that you receive salvation has always been at least hinted at and in some ways shown to be through faith, through believing in God, believing in his promises and in uh, swearing allegiance to him, following him. And so I'd like to start then uh, all the way back in the beginning. You think about Abraham, the man himself. And the, one of the first things we learn about Abraham is back in, in Genesis chapter 12 that he followed God, that God told him, to go out of his land, to a land he had never been to, and he did that. He obeyed. And as we get to chapter 15, where the quotation that we're talking about here, that, that uh, Paul puts in Galatians is, um, in, in chapter 15, 
It's in verse 6, but we'll read uh, starting in around verse 3 of Genesis 15. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man, uh, this uh, Eliezer of Damascus, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God tells Abraham, when he's super old and his wife is getting up there in age, he says, you're going to have a child. And he's like, I don't know how that's possible. But God says, you will and you will have great offspring. In Romans, we're told, he believed, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. And so we get this idea that, that God told Abraham, or Abram in this case, something that is seemingly impossible, and that he believed that God was able to do what God said he was going to do. And this idea of belief and receiving of the promises is, uh, is found in many places throughout the scriptures. In Numbers chapter 14, the people are not able to enter the land because of unbelief. They've, the spies have just gotten back. They've given a bad report. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Similarly, the reason that Moses is unable to enter the land, also connected to belief. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And the author of Hebrews makes the same conclusion from these passages in Numbers. He says, to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so the people in the Old Testament, they could not receive the promises because they did not have faith. And of course, we think faith typically as being a New Testament concept, but it's, it's there as well. Uh, last passage in our Old Testament, we could think about the story of Jonah. When Jonah goes and preaches to the people of Nineveh, why were the people of Nineveh saved? It's because of their faith. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And we see, of course, in all of these, uh, that belief and faith are closely connected with doing the right thing. We see, like, physical repentance going on. We see uh, that in the case of the Israelites, in the case of Moses, that there is action connected to that faith and belief. But still we see this concept threaded throughout the Old Testament that those who believe in God receive the promises, receive salvation, and those who disbelieve do not receive those promises. As we uh, enter into the New Testament, we'll actually turn to this passage. It's uh, in the end of Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to make a very similar point to what uh, we've been making thus far about receiving salvation. At the end of Romans 9 and into the beginning of chapter 10, he says, starting in Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so uh, as we're asking this question, when did faith become the means of righteousness, of receiving promises of salvation? Separate questions a little bit, and we will make this distinction in a moment. But I just want to point out to you that all throughout this period, we see faith being the means of being counted righteous, of receiving the promises, of, of following God. It's, it's always been faith in some way or another. And so with that idea, we, we come back into Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, we already read verses 7 through 9, but we'll read them again. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That if you want to receive the promises of Abraham... You have to be a child of Abraham, and the way you be a child of Abraham is by having faith. As we go to verse 15, he says, to to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He's going to start making an argument about the law here. And this argument goes like this. God promised these things to Abraham. And then 400 years later, we got the law. And so the law cannot be the means by which we receive the promises because the law was added way later and you can't just add things to a promise. So righteousness, salvation, the promises must be found elsewhere beyond the law. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is the way by which things start to change. So, as I have argued, faith has always been the means of of receiving righteousness before God. No one was able to keep the law perfectly. No one was able to walk before God perfectly. And, of course, that is what the law would require in order to be made righteous by the law. But to be made righteous before God, to trust in his promises, to believe in him, that is a separate sort of thing. And we see the people who, who were counted righteous, Abraham being the father, of course, of all of them, as receiving that righteousness through faith. But Jesus, the offspring the, of you know, the third promise, the seed promise, he changed the game a little bit. Because when Jesus came, suddenly the promises were capable of being obtained. Uh, we've been quoting a lot that passage in, in 2 Corinthians, that all the, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That once Jesus came, suddenly we were able to inherit these promises that we were not able to inherit before. And so while righteousness has always been obtained by faith 
in God. And this has always been sort of hinted at. Now, once Jesus is here, he can actually receive the promises and through him, give them to us. We see in Galatians 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That the way we obtain the promise is by being in Christ. And the way that we Uh, And Christ is able to give us the promises by faith because Christ is the heir who actually obtained the promises. And so uh, we read, continuing on in verses uh, 17 through 18, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So we see that the law was never the way to obtain righteousness, never the way to obtain the promises, that it has always been faith, and it's always been faith in Jesus who was to come. And thus, after uh, the author of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 11 that without faith it's impossible to please God, he says at the end of that chapter, all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so we see that while faith has always been the way to be commended before God, the way to receive righteousness before God, the way to receive salvation and some of the promises, some means of them, yet there was something perfect that had to, that came only through Jesus. And so we see that faith and promises have always been connected. But now, finally, in Jesus, they can be perfectly united. And that is the answer to our first question. So then let me ask two more questions. Second question, why the law then? Uh, And he tells us, of course, in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under the law so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So, if in point one, we've established that the law is unable to make you righteous, the law is unable to give you the promises, then what's the point of the law? He says, the point of the law is to be your schoolmaster, your... uh, your tutor, until Jesus came, until the faith came, until everything could be made perfect, we needed some system to hold us in place. And he says, especially uh, in verse uh, 21, that the law could not give life. If it could, then righteousness would be by the law. But since it can't, what does scripture do? Well, scripture imprisons everything. And that's kind of a, a, a dark, uh, that's a kind of a harsh translation. The idea, I think, is that without, script, without the law, as uh, Paul kind of makes this point in uh, Romans 4 through 7, 8, he says that without the law, we wouldn't know what sin was. But now that we have the law, we do know what sin is. And now that we know what sin is, it's obvious 
that no one is righteous. He says in uh, Galatians 3, verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before, the, before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So he says that the law can't justify anybody. It can really just disqualify you. And that's what the law did. It made us aware of sin, and it made us aware that we needed help, that we needed somebody because we, righteousness did not come by the law. And so... It, it imprisoned us, it held us captive until Jesus could come, until we could learn and see and finally understand and have faith in the, the perfect promises of God in their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But as I said, uh, in prison, I think it's a little bit of a, of a harsh translation. It, it taught us what it, about the mind of Christ, and it taught us that we were unworthy before him. Uh, we can see in passages like Leviticus chapter 11, that when God gives the food regulations, he gives them this law to teach them about himself and to teach them about a concept in the law. He says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This two, these two concepts, be holy for I am holy, and I give you these laws so you can make a distinction between what is holy, what is unholy, what is unclean, what is clean. This distinction is critical. This understanding of God's holiness is critical. And so the law taught us about God, but it taught us about God in a way that could not qualify us before him. It could not give us righteousness. It could only disqualify us. If we were to read another passage, say uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, this kind of the outpouring of the, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a commentary on the Shema, really. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, he tells us a pretty similar kind of thing, that through the law, we begin to understand who God is. And because God is a protector of the poor, so we should also be protectors of the poor. But that the law, as we uh, flip back to Galatians, uh, yeah, there's that. That's that Deuteronomy passage. Okay, the law was a schoolmaster. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We'll read through verse 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as previously you were slaves, now you can be sons. And you can be sons because of what Jesus did, because of the faith that came, uh, because you can receive adoption as an heir through faith in all of these things. But the, the distinction is this, that before Jesus, we were slaves. We were held in prison because we were children. We didn't understand. But now that Jesus has come, things have changed. And so why have the law? It's because 
as, as a nation, as the people of God, we were still in our infancy. We were still learning. We were still beginning to make a distinction, still trying to understand the mind of Christ. But now that Jesus has come, now that we have seen not just a revelation of God, but God himself in the flesh on the earth, things have changed. And no longer is the law necessary to bring us to Christ because Christ already came. And so the law, while being very helpful, also had certain flaws. And those flaws were that it was only made for a temporary time. And once Jesus came, we didn't need it anymore. And so that brings us then to our last question, uh, which is why kill the law? And I would actually like to say that there are five reasons, uh, one of which we've kind of already mentioned, but five reasons, and I'll try and go through them fairly quickly. So five reasons why the law had to be gotten rid of first. It was a dividing wall. Uh, let's read Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, that's the wrong way. <laughs> In Ephesians 2, we'll read verses 14 through 16. He says that about Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He says also in verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That previously the Jews... They had it made. They had the law, and that was their access to God. But the Gentiles, they effectively had to become Jews first and then have access to God. And so the Jews, they had this distinct advantage. It was uh, a dividing wall. It, it kept them apart. And God says, I don't want that anymore. And so God did away with the law so that the, the Jews no longer have this advantage. So we all come to God on equal terms. We all, verse 18, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so the law had to be gotten rid of in order to, uh, to, to get to this purpose that God had, that the Jews would no longer have this prideful advantage, but that we would all come to God on equal terms and the dividing wall could be broken down. That's point one. Secondly, that the law was ineffective. We've already talked in, uh, about this a little bit in Galatians chapter 3, but we'll pop back there. Galatians chapter 3, in verse 21, we're told, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We all have this problem. It's one of the, the biggest themes of the Bible. The problem of sin. The problem of rebellion against God. And that's our problem. We all have it. How do we solve it? Well, the law was unable to help us solve that problem. We're told in, in, in chapter 221 that... Uh, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, but we couldn't get righteousness through the law. Uh, we see in verses 11 and 12, which we've already read a little bit of, that it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. We see in, uh, chapter, in verse 18 that uh, if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes through promise, but God gave it to Abraham through a promise. So we have all of these ideas pointing us toward the point that the law was unable to do a very important thing for us, which is to help us to have righteousness, to overcome the rebellion and sin inside of us. So something needed to happen, something needed to change. And of course, we see in Galatians chapter 5 that God sent the Spirit in order to help with that. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For, those who are, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, then you are not under law. Especially verse 18 shows us this distinction. You can either be led by the spirit or you can be under law. Only, only one of those two. And that under the law, you were trying to do the right thing, but you kept doing all of these evil things. You were led by the flesh, you were consumed with the flesh, and you could not overcome the flesh. But now the Spirit gives us the power to overcome what the law was unable to do, uh, to beat sin once and for all. And that is what happens when we walk by the Spirit. And so he says uh, in, in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, we'll read the first four verses. He's just talked, and we'll go back in a minute to chapter 7 of Romans. Uh, he talked about the ineffectiveness of the law. But he says in verse 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That the law was weakened by the flesh. It couldn't accomplish the task of setting us free. And yet now God gave us his spirit. He gave us his son. And these things help us to do what the law could never do, which is to beat sin and rebellion inside of us and to actually serve God the way we're supposed to. And so the law was ineffective. We had to get rid of it. But even more so, the law was corrupted, infected. Uh, and that might seem a little bit strong. But really, as you read uh, Romans seven or 4 through 7, you get this idea uh, that the law, or that sin is something of an entity. Rather than being a thing that we do, uh, sin is personified as something wicked and, and evil, as a parasite of sorts. And we see this especially strong in Romans 7, verses 7 through 12. He says, What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetous. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, he says, listen, the law is good, it's important, it's holy, it's made by God, but the law gave an opportunity for sin to latch on and to create in us all kinds of, of sinful passions that uh, righteousness attained through the law is not only impossible, but also the attempt to obtain righteousness through the law gives the opportunity for sin to latch on and do very dangerous things for us. And so... How do you kill a parasite? Well, one of the ways that you can kill a parasite is to kill the thing that it was eating off of. And so if sin 
can latch on to the law and turn it, you know, in the pharisaical way into self-righteousness and in, you know, another way toward despair and, and, and terror, then, then what can we do? There has to be a new system that, this, that the parasite cannot latch on to. And faith in God, simply trusting in him and believing in him and following him and serving him is a system, a new system, a different system by which righteousness can be attained that sin cannot corrupt, it cannot uh, parasite off of. And so we had to kill the law because we needed a new system, a better system. Similarly, along those lines, Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 7, and of course this is kind of the whole book of Hebrews summed up just a little bit, but uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, we had a system and it wasn't working for us. Uh, the, there were high priests, but they kept dying. There were uh, sacrifices, but they weren't effective. That, and so we needed a better high priest, an eternal high priest, with a better sacrifice in a better tabernacle, uh, enacted on better promises and a better covenant. We needed all of these things. But as you roll into Hebrews chapter 7, he explains, starting in verse 11. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people receive the law, what further need would there be for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12 is really where I want you to zone in. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe, that which no one has ever served as the altar. For it is evident that the Lord has descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. We'll also skip down and read verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so Jesus offers us this new and living way through the flesh into the presence of God that we can receive grace at a time of need. That'd be, you know, 10, 19, and 4, 14. That we receive amazing things because we have Jesus as our high priest. But Jesus can't be a high priest under the old law. It was in, it was in the way. So we had to get rid of the old law because we needed a new high priest, a better high priest. And as long as the law was standing, then we couldn't enter in. He says, talking about the, the previous tabernacle that it had to be destroyed before the way could be opened up into the presence of God. So we needed the law gone in order to have Jesus serve as our high priest. So that is the fourth way. Fourth reason, we, we had to get rid of the law last. And finally, it's because we've already talked about in Galatians, uh, we outgrew it. That at one time we were children. At one time we were slaves. At one time we needed uh, someone to take us to school and make sure we did our homework. But now we're grown. Now we've seen Jesus. Now we have understanding. Now the, the faith and the people of God have matured to a point that we don't need the old law anymore. So it had to be done away with so that we could serve God and receive the promises through faith. And so as we conclude here this morning, Galatians 3, Paul is telling us that righteousness before God cannot be obtained by the law. It had to be obtained through faith. And that we needed Jesus to come to be the fulfillment of the promises in order that we can receive the promises from him by faith in him. 
and that there was an old law and it had a purpose, but that that purpose has passed, that it held us under captive until Jesus came. But now that Jesus has come, we don't need the old law anymore. In fact, the old law, worse than just being unhelpful, it actually got in the way. It needed to be destroyed because it was infected, because it was ineffective, because it, uh, it put up dividing walls, it got in the way of Jesus, and it, because we just outgrew it. And so we need to respond to God, as Paul calls us to, in faith in Christ. That is how we receive the promises of God. He says, starting in verse 27 of Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That is the hope that we have if we trust in Jesus through faith. That is the point of Galatians 3. And that is the thought I want to leave you with this morning, that if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Thank you so much for your time. We'll now be dismissed to class.